should write a book, Fry. People need to know about the can eat more. I'm getting this book on UFOs. Did you know they're real? But there's a huge comic conspiracy to cover it up. Oh, that's just a paranoid fantasy. I want to be a book. You can pick me up, flip through my pages, make sure nobody drew wieners in me. Hello and welcome to the Nuts Your Grandmother's Book Club Podcast, where we read them so you don't have to, because we stand with our Orca brothers and sisters. <laughs> my name is Kevin and I'm joined as always by my co-host Benedict, who has a new article coming out in the Atlantic about why we need to nuke the ocean. Benedict! <laughs> <laughs> what a stupid fucking article, aren't you? <laughs> Seriously, look, I get it, I get it. It's hard to come up with ideas sometimes. And you're just uh, like, yeah. hey, but this is trending on Twitter. Like, I'll fighting, write about this. Fighting, finding Nemo and being actually, like, actually, fish aren't friends. They are fish. <laughs> <laughs> I know orcas aren't fish, but that's not the point. <laughs> Anyways, Benedict, what is your favorite ocean fish? Uh, to eat? Or to... To, sure. I, I Look, I usually ask you food-based questions. I think sure. you would infer that it was a food-based That's question. That's true, yeah. Uh, I, um, probably tuna. Okay. But like a tuna steak, not can. All right, I was, with you, the question needs to be asked further. Which kind yeah, are we talking yeah, about here? I've seen tuna, what they call British food. Tuna steak with a balsamic <laughs> glaze, obviously, is what I'm talking about. I have also, like, weirdly, they sell, and I don't, I don't know if it's legal to sell here, but in the UK, they sell marlin. As like huh. just at the supermarket, and it's at good. the it supermarket, like yeah, like at a random supermarket. They'll start. You can buy like occasionally. Sometimes they'll be like, "Yeah, we have marlin in today," and you're like, "Oh, that's weird." Yeah, that does feel really strange. That's think, not I even a league. Are there marlin here? in the Atlantic Ocean, or is that just in the Pacific? I think they're in the Atlantic Ocean. I, don't I really honestly know. don't know. I couldn't tell you. I could not tell you to be honest. But. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's illegal here, but I'm not sure. So people correct me if I'm wrong. I know um, people like fish for them in Mexico, but yeah. I have no idea whether it's legal in the U.S. No, well, I don't no know clue. if it, it's like one of those things where I think like here it's not really legal to sell like deer commercially, even though people hunt them. No, you can buy venison. Not Just everywhere. Most places though. don't don't have it. Okay. Well, I thought I, I, I think it's not everywhere that you can buy. <laughs> anyway, um, I don't really know what I'm talking about. What's your favorite <laughs> ocean fish? Uh, I am going to go uh, with eel. I love Ooh. me some eel. Is eel a fish? Good question. Don't really care. It's still my okay. answer. <laughs> it's like, and honestly, I don't know if I like eel or if I like the sauce that eel is usually served with. You know what I mean? In Japanese cuisine. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's I mean. generally what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's like who eats more. I know, okay, I know in the UK you have like weird shit like eel We pie. jelly those motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Does and, not and when sound I, When as I say jelly, I mean jello, not jelly. <laughs> we put eels in jello and I'm like, this is eat your fucking <laughs> jelly deal, bitch. <laughs> God, your country has suffered for so long. <laughs> yeah, that's why we inflicted suffering on the world. Was because people <laughs> people were trying to get away from the jelly deals. They were like, please, God, no. Anything okay, wait, no. Deal. Okay, around the time that Charles became king, I remember seeing, and I don't know if it was a meme or not, but I saw something about like a special eel pie. 
that the king has so to eat. So they normally serve the jelly like an eel pie but i think they're like endangered or something or like so, okay so it was real it. it was true it's, yeah i think it's on john <laughs> oliver something to do with it was bad for the environment and he's like a big environmental like well as much as a fucking king can be a big environmental <laughs> hey person. he owns all of the geese my friend the swans the, the swans not sure. the geese the geese are public domain we're communists about the geese the uh, geese the are on a creative are... commons license yeah exactly the swans are the swans are royal property uh, <laughs> anyway that's uh, anyway something to do with it was bad for the environment or they were endangered or something so he brought in like a quiche instead of an eel pie as like the traditional crowning <laughs> And I then like people to picked it's up one a of those microwave quiches you get from the frozen. No, but it was like a vegetarian quiche, and then Nigel Farage was like, "Look at what they're trying to make." As it, there was a whole, it was a whole thing. Nigel Farage complaining about the king. Wow, I know, I know. Seems Can you imagine? strange. Seems it, absolutely strange. strange. Absolutely. Anyways, Benedict, uh, you probably know what it is that we do here on this program. I do, uh, yeah. Other folks. Folks who've never had an eel pie, mm. they might not know what we do here. Now, then I would say, this is the show where we go deep, 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 deep to plumb the depths of right-wing thought by reviewing a chapter from work of conservative literature. <laughs> and in between, I'm still working on my rhythm there because changing things uh, takes me some time. It's not literature, it's literature. literature. It's three, no, no, three syllables, literature. Nah, it, has then you can be the same. it has to be said in a funny way. That's the only no, way this works. It doesn't. Literature. It's the only way I get through it. That's the, that's okay. the, real, that's the real issue. Literature is three syllables. You can keep the rhythm the same. Literature. Okay. And in between, taking a look at other examples, the right, doing their best to make America hate again. Start us up, Benedict. Do you have a hot take for us this week? Yeah, uh, brought to you by the Ashes series starting in... Uh, in the UK. Is that um, cricket, right? Yeah, cricket. Okay. So cricket, deeply fun and underrated game. And I will <laughs> I, I, I will defend it until my dying day. Five days of, of like, <laughs> it's it, it's chanting. It's great fun. It's, it's so much more fun than baseball. I was at a baseball game recently. Okay, is cricket this the so one with the super long games that last yeah, for like days? Five days. Five days. So it's one game for like five days. Five days, yep. That sounds ridiculous. So it's, it they is stop ridiculous. though, right? They like stop and restart the next. Yeah, game. they don't play yeah, through the night. Like, it's not like the twenty-four hour of Le Mans. Where they're I just think it's the going. only game in the world that. Well, like maybe not the only game in the world. There's probably several minor British games, but the only major sport in the world that includes a tea break. <laughs> There is both a lunch break and a tea break. Is there? I have to know. You know, uh, in most sports, there's like a timeout. Do they have like a special sign for the tea break? No, like they a, don't. A they do that they sign do the when they want to challenge a call, out. though. When they want to challenge a, when they think the, when they think the umpire's got it wrong, and they want to challenge the call, they do that timeout type sign. Well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like I would play cricket if, if I was at a place yeah. where all the stuff was there. I'd try it out. It would probably fun. be fun. It would probably it fun. be fun. As someone who fun. grew up playing baseball. Yeah, yeah. It, if you yeah. like baseball, I think you would like cricket. Especially, like, I like the the long cricket because I'm weird. And also, <laughs> I have, like, a lot of summer memories that are tied to just, like, watching cricket with my family. Like, that's, that's weird nostalgia for me. But, like, the short form of the game lasts, like, three hours. It's like a baseball game, mm. and it's a lot of fun. 
Sure. I'm never and, and part, to any part of the entertainment is like the crowd is just so far. So this morning I was watching the the England Australia game and the, they were the, they were like they, they you know they do like the beer snake like same stuff you do in mm-hmm. baseball that yep. kind of stuff. But they also had a beach ball floating around and they lost it onto the field and there was like a good ten minutes of them just going we want our ball back <laughs> we want our ball back. The <laughs> UK does have. <laughs> Some of the best crowd chants in the business. It's really yeah, hard to beat. It's really Especially hard Especially soccer. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Lizzie's in a box, baby. <laughs> yeah, well, not just that. It's just like, it's like, I love those things that like Americans are like, refs, you suck or whatever. And then it uh-huh. like cuts to, cut to British crowds. And it's like, right, lads, I've come up with a chant about this guy's <laughs> mom that's set to like Claire de Lune. I'll count us in. One, two, three, four. <laughs> Anyway. Yeah, we really do need to bring some of that to the U.S. sports. Yeah, you should, really I'm do. surprised. This is so much creativity in it. <laughs> um, God bless us. Anyway, what's your hot take? My hot take this week, Benedict. Uh, the the energy drink business is in crisis. Um, the, How I, much are you rescuing it by powering through your hangover this morning with seven Gatorades? <laughs> no, not Gatorades. I have the the new Monster Ultra Strawberry Dream. Um, and I, uh, look, here's the thing. I hate myself for drinking. That sounds like a vape flavor. (laughs) It should be. I hate myself for drinking this. Not just because I know it's terrible for my body, but because I know that Monster Energy, it might be Rockstar, but I drink both of them. I forget which one it is. Uh, was founded, uh, by Michael Savage's son. Uh, Michael Savage being the insane, crazy, uh, homophobic weirdo. Um, who we've talked about several times yep, and have to do a full times. episode on at some yeah, point. Yeah. We really do have to because he's a fucking nightmare of a human being. Uh, but there's been, like, shakeups in the industry recently, which I only noticed because, like, brands I've been buying for a long time just disappear off the shelves. Okay. And I think one of them, it was like they got sued by Monster for, like, copyright infringement or trademark. I have no idea what it was. Um, but the one point I'm going to make here today is that people, we need to start a petition uh, to send to Rockstar to bring back the pina colada-flavored <laughs> energy drink. That is what I need in my life. Um, what? Okay. I found myself deeply craving it the other day. How do they, is it just anymore. like a virgin pina colada? What's the, yeah, what's basically, the, but a little okay. bit of fizz in it. A little bit of fizz. So when coconut, I was a mechanic, pineapple, no rum? Yeah. When I was a mechanic, okay. I would drive, uh, it was about a half hour, 45 minute drive to get to work every morning. Um, and I would stop at the same gas station every day, and I would get the same thing. I'd get two pina colada rock stars and one breakfast sandwich. That's what I got every single day back okay. when I was a mechanic. Um, Did anyone, were they ever like, here's your regular order, sir? No, but they knew me. They knew me because okay. I was there yeah. every fucking morning. <laughs> like yeah. We had our little inside jokes, right? We had our nods. We got it. We knew what yeah. was up. Uh, but I need those pina colada rock stars back, and that's really okay. the entire point. When did really... they discontinue them? God, probably like 2012. Okay. <laughs> At some point, I remember going in in the morning and they just weren't there anymore. I don't know when that was. Do you was, know what just happened in my upset. head? I was like, there's no way you were an adult in 2012. That's so <laughs> long ago. And then I was like, nope, I had almost finished college. You are officially <laughs> older than me for the next several months. Yeah, that's true. You know how old we were in 2012. I, yes, that's, yeah. That's true. That's fine. Thank Anyways, you for Benedict, <laughs> on housekeeping this week, remember to rate and review us on the iTunes. Uh, follow us on the social medias at NYGBCPod and at NYGBCBen on Twitter. Uh, updates. Uh, no updates this week. 
Um, yeah, I don't know even why, and I don't know why I read updates there because there are no Kevin updates. was hungover uh, and hasn't prepared for the show. Look, it, it's a little rough this morning, I'll admit. <laughs> I'm having a little bit of a rough morning. Maybe I had a few too many drinks celebrating Juneteenth last night. Sure, uh, but uh, we're gonna make it through this episode one way or another. Maybe we'll see. We have Benedict one inductee into the spooky world, new world order, Blah. and that of course is Andy Block on Twitter. And this award is mainly just be for correcting you about last week's episode. That's why it happened. So, Andy Block, you are now part of our... Blue World Spooky World Order. Thank you. I will say, despite public opinion, I am not the font of all knowledge. I am sometimes wrong. <laughs> that accent makes people think you it are. It does. Though. It tricks people. <laughs> and, of course, if you would like to join the Spooky World New World Order... Bleh, you can tweet or post about the show on social media, recommend it to others, and send me a screenshot or tag us in it. Leave us a five-star review wherever you can and drop me a screenshot to let me know. Make a donation to a worthwhile charity, become a patron, or just get my attention with something good. And with all that out of the way, Benedict, why don't we get into this week's episode? Now, a couple weeks ago, I do not remember at all when it was, uh, I made an offhand comment that at some point... I should do an episode about the legal victories that have been had against white supremacist organizations. <clears throat> and that sort of provided the, the impetus uh, to this episode, right? So, as I often do, uh, sitting in the hot tub earlier this week, uh, that idea just sort of made its way into my brain. And I started doing a whole bunch of reading on my phone in the hot tub, which is not the most conducive place to write an episode. Uh, you know, the computer yeah, would do well I would if I dropped it in there. shouldn't do that. Yeah, it generally doesn't work. But... That sort of led to today's episode and the probably, I'm guessing, three to four episode miniseries that this episode okay. is kicking off. So that'll kick it off. Joe. I'm not exactly sure how many episodes it's going to be because, honestly, when I started, I was like, okay, I can do this in two episodes. And Why don't we make point... it four episodes and make this a short one? <laughs> at some point while writing, went, I went, no, fuck, I can't do this. And there's got to be three episodes. There's got to be three. And then when I was finishing up, I went, no, fuck, I might have to do four. So who knows how many this is going to take. But we're going to start off this little miniseries uh, kicking off uh, with focusing on civil rights victories more broadly. And today, focusing largely on the First Amendment rights. Okay. And then in two weeks, the next episode, you know, we'll be looking at uh, more, I think, what people... When they say civil rights, what they mean, they mean mm -hmm. rights of African-Americans and oppressed minorities in this country and things like that. We're basically going to go through, uh, and then there's going to be another episode probably about uh, the criminal legal system and criminal procedure. So all this stuff, look, I'm a lawyer and I'm a nerd. This is the kind of stuff that I get really excited about. So I, I did get really excited when I was writing that. this episode. That That's exactly how this came about. Is I was like, oh, I'm a fucking nerd, right? Yep. I'm a lawyer and, and I unabashedly and emphatically am a fan of our civil legal system. I don't believe that it's perfect. It definitely isn't. It often arrives at the, uh, the, the wrong outcome. But because throughout most of U.S. history, it has been through lawsuits and rulings through our courts, usually the Supreme Court, that some of the most important and impactful change has been made. Okay. And I think that the potential remains to create great new change through that same way. Obviously, we have setbacks. Not with the current court, That's what though, I was about I to say. say. <laughs> yeah. We have some issues with fascists on uh -huh. the court, creepy weirdos and a bunch of religious cult members. But the structure of the court itself, which, look, also deserves plenty of scrutiny and criticism. Yeah, I'm, I am at this point in favor of putting more justice on the court. Get it up to 15, 20, I don't care how many. Just Get it up to 365 million. Everyone gets a vote. Exactly. There we go. <laughs> 
uh, that probably wouldn't work out very well. Would no. you like to be voting every other week uh, on a, a case? I don't think that would work very well. Yeah, if they paid me a Supreme Court <laughs> justice salary, sure. Yeah, that is the, a problem comes about when uh, every Supreme Court justice can't have a billionaire benefactor if everyone yeah. is a Supreme Court justice. You really just can't have that system work. So, look, I understand that people hate the Supreme Court. They call it undemocratic. They call it corrupt, whatever. They, all these, these criticisms of the Supreme Court, many of those are valid. Mm-hmm. But it is the ability to bring these cases to someone who has an ability to say no. This is wrong. We need to change this. That is something that you simply can't get, uh, or at least not as easily, through Congress or the executive branch or your state and local governments. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because you're basically stuck with their willingness to give a shit on those levels. Whereas in the legal system... Well, also, I mean, I would say it's not just that. It's like their willingness to burn political capital to make change, right? Like you build political capital in order to make change, whereas in the legal system, you don't need to do that because most of the positions aren't elected. Yeah, well, certainly in the federal legal system, most of them are not elected, right? That is, it's it's very state by state whether judges are elected or not. But the insulation from... Uh, sort of the the public opinion uh, that could cause them to lose their job, although certainly they could if it was bad enough and they got impeached, um, that does lead to some positive possibilities. And like I said, mm-hmm. the problem we face right now is that we got a bunch of shitlo- just shitlord fascists on the pre- So what Supreme you're saying Court. is we, we need got. dictators in the political system in order to make change. No, and I also, I <laughs> no, I take a little bit <laughs> Obviously of... I'm joking. I know, I know. <laughs> When people say things like that the Supreme Court is undemocratic and unelected, I am a little bit of like, yeah, but, you know, they're appointed by the president and the Congress, which are both elected by us. And, you know, the, the yeah. effects of our our decisions in electing those people has an impact on who ends up on the Supreme Court. Yeah, I'm not sure people on. see it that way. You know, I don't think, well, maybe for some people it is a motivating voting factor, but it's probably a minority. Uh, for the right, I think it's been yeah. one of the most important motivating factors. No, I agree. Factors I agree, I agree. I don't think people really think about it that way in terms of well until recently yeah but so that potential in the realm of civil rights which is what we're talking about for these couple episodes i think often stems from the unrealized promises in the constitution right those things that we hear lem over on prager you shout about like that all men are created equal are phrases of great importance and consequence that even when they were written right they were just worthless words coming out through the pen of slave-owning hypocrites But they do have real potential to be put into practice through our courts today, and Mm -hmm. I think the sort of reverence and worship of the political religion of the United States is a tool to push for the advancements of our rights in that way, right? I've talked about political religion in the past. It's the pseudo-religious worship of the United States or whatever ideas an individual wants to ascribe to the United States. Um, We don't have time to get into that really today. But... (laughs) There's a reason why, despite them being American court cases, internationally, a large number of people can name probably at least, I would guess, Brown v. Board of Education or Roe v. Wade. Because the impact... I think you would be surprised how few people outside of America can really? name Brown v. Roe v. Wade, yes. Yeah. Brown v. Board of Education, I don't think so. I think people are more likely to be able to name a Burge v. Hodges than Brown v. Board of Education. You know, point taken, depending on which case you're talking about, the point being that these American court cases... Sometimes many people outside of the United States can state them by I, at least the short title. Yeah, and I, I mean the the other thing I would say is that's largely because of American cultural hegemony. Like I'm yes. not sure it's because of particularly you know the fact that these are like 
era defining cases. I mean, sure. they are in America. Everyone watches Hollywood, Hollywood movies, and, exactly. you know, they, these things get mentioned in there. Right. I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm not disagreeing with it. But so off the jump, I have to address a couple things. First off, um, an hour plus podcast format is by no means enough time to cover the history of civil rights law in the United States. Right. Okay. You can go take entire classes in law school with two classes a week for an entire semester. That'll just give you a basic intro into that. But we can tell you where you can learn more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go go take the LSAT. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what you can do. But especially given that this show um, has a surprisingly high percentage of international listeners, I still don't understand why that's the case. I don't know why we have so many international listeners. It makes no yeah. sense to me. Why are you people interested in us? I'm glad that you are, but I have no idea why you are. But I think since a lot of our listeners... It's probably, honestly, just like a good way to learn English from like an American <laughs> accent and a British accent. People are like, just listen to these two and you'll see the differences in the way that they speak English. I would We're just love in... it if we started getting really big on like the Reddit English forums. We're just in an stuff. ESL class somewhere. Some poor <laughs> teachers being like, and what did he mean by this? That'd be fantastic. Learn of uh, wow, a lot of curse words. You know, yeah. a lot Just of curse every words curse word show. you could imagine. <laughs> but so, you know, since a lot of our listeners are international, I think that don't have a sort of basic understanding of the U.S. legal system or a general sense of our history on this topic that maybe more Americans have. Um, I'm st- this first episode is going to be focused a little bit more on sort of the basics of how the American legal system works and things. Um, but second is that... Well, Which obviously I already know, and I'm just, you know, along for the ride as you explain it to these people <laughs> that don't know that. Yeah. Well, you managed to pass the citizenship test, so That's you got true, something yeah. there. It's not very hard, to be fair. <laughs> but second is that I have put this under the umbrella of the Lunatic Fringe series, because while most of today's episode is historical and not in the present day, where my thesis is active about the right take being taken over, uh, the history of the struggle for civil rights is a struggle against conservatism, right? Ben Shapiro himself told us that conservatism's about conserving, and the teenagers he talks to doesn't know what they want to conserve. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that was him. That's my memory of where that came from, but I don't know entirely. But the status quo and civil rights advances have always been opposed to each other, right? Because obviously the status quo has not been in favor of civil rights for much of our history. I also think it's fair to say that the fight for civil rights certainly has been, at least on occasion, if not often, a fight against white supremacists. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and we're not really covering, you know, today, like I said, we're basically covering First Amendment stuff. Sure. Um, we're going to get to, you know, what people call the civil rights era, voting yeah. rights uh, and all that sort of stuff. Um, um, probably next week, maybe the week after, depending on, you know, how these episodes uh, uh, turn out. But and when uh, you say that, you mean in two weeks because we have to do the same. School, yeah, so. that's what I mean. But, but also, you know, in the First Amendment arena, as we'll talk about, a lot of these cases, unfortunately, have been brought on behalf of white supremacists. Mm. And, you know, I, I should mention, as a lawyer, many of my personal heroes are lawyers, uh, some of whom were involved Lame. in some of the cases we're going to talk about today. But people are flawed, they're imperfect, and sometimes they're just shitty. Um, mm. We can celebrate the accomplishments of these people while also looking at their flaws, right? 
the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, um, have probably had more involvement in civil rights cases than any other single organization, just due to their size and how they also grew up. defended Nazis occasionally. Right? Yes, I mean, that's a whole yes, thing. they they have a very problematic history of free speech absolutism, which has led them to take cases for the American Nazi Party, uh, the Nazis at, at Charlottesville, among others. Uh, we'll talk about a few of those cases today. As well as, like, at one point, like, purging communists from their ranks during World War II, uh, refusing to take an official stance on Japanese internment, although members, uh, individual chapters of the ACLU, did bring cases, like the Korematsu case, uh, mm. against internment. But, you know, there's, there is cowardice and there is wrong thinking that led to defending Nazis. Uh, a lot of that is mixed in there, and I think they deserve all the criticism that they, they should have. And I think that criticism makes them stronger. We need the ACLU in this country. They are incredibly important, but mm -hmm. we do need to criticize them when they do things that are kind of shitty. And, you know, and there's other people like Morris Dees, who founded the SPLC, which has done tremendous good. Uh, but Morris himself has been credibly accused of sexual harassment and racism and sexism against his staff and was let go in 2019, right? We can't gloss over those flaws of the people who, who even did this good work uh, if we're going to be realistic about mm -hmm. uh, how this all shook out. So... To begin with, I think we first need a basic background and overview of the U.S. legal system and the, okay. the sort of state of civil rights and constitutional law. You country. have 10 minutes. <laughs> no, Benedict, I'm teaching a class today. You're going to sit down and shut up. Okay, I'm going to go. Uh, let me know when you're done. I'll come say goodbye. So, Benedict, as we've heard many times, uh, the U.S. is a uh, republic, not a democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, but more importantly, it's a constitutional democratic republic uh, okay. with three main branches. Congress, which includes the House and the Senate, the mm -hmm. executive branch, which is the presidency, and the Supreme Court of the United States. Now, sure. th this also mixes in with the idea of federalism. Otherwise known as legislative, executive, and judicial. Yes, you can say it that way if you like Citizenship to. test 101. <laughs> Let's go. I'm just trying to contribute. These are things that I know. I don't remember if leading up to the test you ever asked me any questions about I think I, I think, think I at one point you, you like, had the, the test book and you were like, yeah. you know, quizzing me, but you never like asked me for help. No, Probably no, no. Probably because it's not a very complicated it's, it's test. It's not. It's not. It's not. <laughs> They it asked me funny. who the current vice president was in my test. Ah, of course. Uh, Robert yeah. F. Kennedy Jr. We all know. Yep, that's right. Uh, so, so uh, like I said, federalism ties into this, where the states the, the states would like to tell you that they're all separate and independent, and the conservative ones in particular would like that to be the case. That's not really the case, and a lot of that is because we had a little thing called the Civil War where mm. they said, we're all independent, fuck you. And we said, sit the fuck down. No, and we said, not. absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's basically what came about there. But that obviously is one of the main tensions in American politics, is the right wing's focus on states' rights. Mm -hmm. States' rights. And the question, obviously, is to states' what? rights yeah. to do what? Uh, to which the answer is never good. So we have a federal system, which is the individual states. In, in every state, the states have their own independent legal systems. So the state of California, for example, has a legal system which consists of trial-level courts, intermediate appellate courts, and then the Supreme Court of California. So okay. it is not, as some people might think or intuit, that once a case is decided by the Supreme Court of California, the highest-level court in the state, that then there is a next level, which is the Supreme Court of the United States, or another a federal level court like that. They are not, uh, 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 what is the term? Uh, they're not in sequence. They are mm. parallel court systems. 
That said, but one one overrules the other, right? Because like the Supreme Court of the United States can be like, it is not with legal regard under to federal law that constitutional you did that. and federal issues yeah. only. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, state courts, state supreme courts in particular, are the ultimate arbiters of what state law means and what the state constitution means. The United States Supreme Court is the independent arbiter of what federal law and the federal constitution means. So, and presumably whether states' decisions cross over into that federal landscape, they decide on that as well. Yes. If you get a opinion from a state Supreme Court that you disagree with, you can take it to the federal courts. You can take it appeal to the Supreme Court if there is an issue of federal or constitutional law raised by that decision. That's right. how you can get there. You can't just say, hey, they said that this statute says I can't. Uh, paint a swastika on my lawn. Well, that's a bad one because that might cross over into. Uh, that's probably a hate crime, issues. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, they said that uh, the zoning in uh, Zone B12 of downtown uh, Richmond, California, doesn't allow me to build uh, an industrial meatpacking facility there. Mm-hmm. You can't then appeal that to the Supreme Court of the United States unless you have some sort of constitutional claim for why the 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 you know Constitution should interpret it as knocking down that statute or something. So, anyways. Establishing the Supreme Court as an independent-ish branch was sort of a novel idea at the time of the founding. Um, Mm -hmm. In the UK, which the US legal system is obviously based on, the judiciary fell under the executive, the king. Uh, And initially, the founders don't seem to have considered the court all that important. Um, it basically <laughs> operated out of a basement for much of its early history. <laughs> just Washington's basement. Just off you go. Go on. <laughs> no, I think it was originally uh, the Capitol building, whatever building they were using in New York. Um, oh, fun. And then when they moved out uh, to D- – like, I don't remember when the Supreme Court building was built, but it wasn't until the early 20th century when they got the nice new building that sits there now that we all, all think of as the Supreme Court. Um, it might have been earlier than that. It might have been like the 30s. I can't remember. I've done that tour a bunch of times, mm. but I can't remember when the building was built. Clearly so anyways, made a lasting impression on you. <laughs> I don't remember tours very well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the ability of the court to overturn laws that were found to be unconstitutional is not even explicitly established within the Constitution itself. It basically just says that a Supreme Court will be established, and, you know, that that's basically the gist of it. Uh, the Article 3 is, is very brief about the Supreme Court. But it was established uh, in one of our earliest and most famous Supreme Court cases, Marbury v. Madison, uh, mm-hmm. which was about uh, outgoing president... Uh, was Madison James, the outgoing James president? James Madison. James, I believe he was the outgoing president who had signed a bunch of, um, uh, uh, like, like, what are they called? Like, you give somebody a job. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, or maybe Madison was Secretary of State, whatever it was. He had signed, like, these things that were given jobs to people. Um, okay. And he had he had one that was going to Marbury that was signed and it was stamped, but it hadn't been delivered. And so, so it wasn't was, his yet. So, yeah, that was the whole. So argument. it was signed, sealed, but not delivered. Yeah, and it the whole argument his, was: like, is delivery required to make this? Is effective? that what the Stevie Wonder song is about? <laughs> <laughs> People don't know this. Uh, Stevie it's Wonder about Marbury Big Madison. con laundered. <laughs> Big con laundered. That's where Stevie gets most of his ideas. Uh, superstition, uh, matter of fact, is about uh, Thurgood Marshall. Uh, I don't know why that would be the case. But anyways, 
No, it'd be about Jeannie Thomas. Superstition yeah. would be about Jeannie Thomas. That's absolutely who it would be about. That crazy fucking nutball. We're gonna have to talk about her when we get to one of these episodes sure. about the more recent court. Because she, I was looking at the the emails that she sent uh, around the time of the insurrection. Um, boy, that lady's fucking boy nuts. She's bad. Straight up yeah. Q pilled. Straight up Q pilled, and it's Not fucking good. insane. Yep. I can't believe that's the case. Uh, but anyways, so. He, Sorry. From, from Mar- Marbury, Marbury yeah, you Madison, interrupted me, and now I'm like, where the fuck was I? It's so, fine. It was a good joke, so it was worth <laughs> the interruption. <laughs> it's all right. So Marbury v. Madison is where we get uh, Chief Justice John Marshall writing, quote, It is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. Okay, so he was just allowed to be like, I am the law, and then everyone was just like, okay, cool. John Marshall is Judge Dredd. John Marshall is Judge Dredd. Now, I should clarify exactly what I mean when I say civil rights, right? Um, Why I've labeled civil rights litigation as a fight against conservatism. Civil rights, broadly defined, are rights related to individual freedom, political expression, and participation in society. And in the U.S., I think the term usually invokes, like, the civil rights era of the 50s and 60s. which was Oh, largely, it definitely does. Yeah, yeah. With largely about the right of African Americans to vote, to participate in politics, be free from oppression, discrimination, and so on. But that is, I will say, like an application of civil rights. I think if you the ask the French, they'd say it's the ideals of the French Revolution. Sure. Ch- sure. So, right, which I think is probably... Fraternité. Equalité. I think it's, that's probably a more global definition of civil rights than, than what we have. Sure, sure. But we are, of course, talking about the American context sure. here, right? In their undistilled form, civil rights are things like the, the right to the freedom of speech and assembly, the right to privacy, the right to be free from discrimination, and a whole host of others. So you might say uh, liberty, fraternity, and equality. Sure, Dick. Some of which we'll talk about today. Uh-huh. <laughs> As you would imagine, uh, while some of these rights were stated by name in the Constitution, um, most of them, you know, people didn't really seem to actually care whether or not you had them or not for most of our history. Um, you know, they, they, I don't think that most of these rights have ever been fully implemented or fully realized. Um, and as I mentioned, a number of them are explicitly under attack by the right today. Mm-hmm. So to begin talking about the civil rights uh, that we're talking about today, we needed to begin by talking about the U.S. Bill of Rights. Uh, so okay. the U.S. Constitution was ratified, meaning accepted and made law in the U.S. in 17 what, Benedict? Uh, 87. 88, 1780. It was signed in 87. Oh, it was so that's the question. That's the question they ask. When yeah. is it signed? Which is yeah. why. Okay, yeah. right, right. Sorry, uh, amending fault. the Constitution is a process that's laid out in Article 5, and it requires a two-thirds majority in both the House and the Senate, or a national convention, which has never been used as an option. But if you remember the John Birch Society... It is Society, possible. There was a, there was a whole movement, right? It's possible. But you remember how the John Birch Society is always complaining about a con-con? Yeah. That's what they're talking about. They yeah, really yeah. don't want a national convention. convention. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then it must be ratified by three quarters uh, of the state legislatures or ratification conventions of three quarters of the states, uh, which has only ever been used for the 21st Amendment, which repealed prohibition. Wasn't there yeah. a minute when we were worried about that? It, uh, like, I think it was in like. About the, not repealing prohibition? I've no, you won't. Yeah, that. But no, in, in 2010, I think people were like, oh, the conservatives have a lot of controls of state houses now. We should maybe be concerned about that. Yeah, it's, I do agree. It's something to be concerned about, <sighs> right? Uh, it's, 
you know, talking about the structural inequities of the U.S. political system is outside the scope of this episode, but Mm. something we probably do need to talk about at some point. But so the following year, in 1789, Congress passed 12 amendments to the U.S. Constitution, uh, 10 of which went on to be ratified by the states and what we now call the Bill of Rights. What were the two that weren't? Well, actually, fun fact, there were originally 17 uh, that were passed by the House, but only 12 of those passed the Senate. Um, and funny enough, the Second Amendment was actually the fifth in the original House version. Okay. Uh, but the first two were rejected. They were about uh, apportionment of representation and compensation of Congress. Uh, <laughs> of course they were. The first two were like, how much money can I, what's my take home pay? <laughs> well, it was, so here's the funny thing. The compensation of Congress won. Um, it, 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 it passed uh, the House and Senate, but it wasn't ratified. Okay. And it was eventually ratified in, I think, 1992. But because, like, some high school kid realized, hey, this is just sitting here, and nobody's done anything with it. And it's the it's – the, I forget which amendment number it is, but the amendment is that Congress cannot pass a law that affects um, their compensation uh, in the current term. It has to take effect in the next term. Gotcha. So they can't just be like, okay, guys, we all just got elected. Now we pass a law that says we make $10 billion. Like, they, they can't do that. That's, That's not good. allowed. Yeah. It's generally – positive right it's fine. yeah sure um and then the third and fourth amendments were combined to make the first amendment and gotcha so for those who don't know uh the rights in the bill of the right bill of rights are basically so we have the first amendment which has freedom from religion in the form of the establishment establishment clause uh freedom of religion uh freedom of speech freedom of the press freedom of assembly and the right to petition government for redress of grievances mm-hmm. uh the second amendment right the right to bear arms that I feels disagree. like it should be more than one amendment honestly that's like a lot going on in one amendment you know, it, it is feels very legally cluttered. problematic it's a very cluttered amendment and i mean honestly i i am like i remember thinking i think at one point in law school like you know they could have just done these as bullet points well also especially if they combine like one if, two if, three yeah. four five you go like 50 or something to get if them all they in did there. combine them as well like why did they combine them just leave them separate did they just want an even 10 was that the i feel like somebody had real editor brain it was like hey look we need to save some page space uh each page page is gonna paper was expensive back in the day to be fair (laughs) that is true it's probably Uh, to do with the 10 command i bet you it's to do with the 10 commandments so like we want it to be 10 well they passed 12 though remember but they just didn't get two of them ratified sure so maybe i don't know so second amendment the right to bear arms the Third Amendment prohibits the quartering of soldiers in private homes. Obviously, Weird the most one. important amendment today. Yeah. Uh, fourth Amendment, uh, prohibition on unreasonable searches and seizures. Fifth Amendment, uh, indictment by grand jury, double jeopardy, the right against self-incrimination, right, taking the fifth, uh, due process in the federal context, mm-hmm. and no taking of private property without compensation. Uh, the Sixth Amendment includes the speedy trial right, the right to a public trial, the right to a trial by an impartial jury of peers, the right to be informed of your charges, the right to confront witnesses, the right to compel witnesses to appear, and the right to counsel. And then the Seventh Amendment has a right to jury trial for cases worth, civil cases worth over $20, which is funny. <laughs> Not a uh, lot. I, they didn't realize inflation would happen. I just feel like they didn't realize, oh, we have to listen to everything these numbskulls ever said. They didn't realize fucking inflation was a thing. I really feel like we need to address that. Uh, The Eighth Amendment has a prohibition on excessive bail and a prohibition on excessive fines or cruel and unusual punishments. Um, And then the Ninth Amendment states that failure to enumerate rights in the Constitution shall not be construed to deny or disparage other rights retained by the people. I yell that one every time for the Mm. people over on the right 
who don't understand that other rights exist. And then you have the Tenth Amendment, which is the you know reservation of rights uh, uh, not delegated to the U.S. by the Constitution or prohibited to it, uh, uh, prohibited by it to the states or to the people. So mm-hmm. now, how well would you guess all the things listed there were honored by the states and federal government throughout U.S. history? Uh, knowing nothing about it, I would guess not well. Not well, yeah. Okay. Not very well at all. I mean, just looking at the First Amendment, which will be most of our topic today, several states had official churches, official state churches, before and that after the passage like of the First Amendment. That seems, like, very clearly illegal. <laughs> yeah, feels like I would violate the First Amendment, would right? Does, New yeah. Hampshire kept their official state church until 1817, and Connecticut kept theirs until 1818. So... They didn't quite care for a lot of this First Amendment stuff. And, uh, you know, um, I should also talk about sort of a a, a quirk of U.S. constitutional law, uh, one which has probably led to far more problems than you can imagine. And that is that originally the Bill of Rights only applied to the federal government. So in other words, your freedom of speech only protected you against the federal government trying to infringe on your freedom of speech. And it really didn't protect you that much anyways because things like profanity could still be made illegal and and nobody cared about that because, you know, Puritan douchebags. But the states could restrict your speech however they wanted to. And they sure as fuck did. And so did the federal government also, by the way. It's also, sorry, just on that point, it is wild that we had profanity laws. Right. Isn't that fucking crazy? Yeah. Isn't that fucking crazy, Ben? It is. Isn't that fucking <laughs> nutballs, bullshit, <laughs> other swear words crazy? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, we had that. And, and that profanity laws existed right up through the 20th century all around this country. Oh, yeah. The stand-up comedian. What's his name? I want to say Larry David. It's not Larry <laughs> David. <laughs> Lenny uh, Bruce. Lenny, Lenny Bruce, Bruce yeah. famously yeah. got arrested a bunch for, for, for breaking profanity laws. Right. Right. So, you know, we haven't really cared about these things throughout history. And that's why I also always say that I don't give a fuck about the historical arguments. I really don't care about people who want to argue about how things were at the time of the founding because the founders were pieces of shit and they had a lot wrong. They really didn't care about people's rights. And they certainly don't believe in freedom of speech like right wing shitbags who do believe in originalism or textualism uh, believe in today. Because Mm -hmm. you can't hold those two things simultaneously. You can't be a free speech absolutist and also think that we should be originalists or textualists. Those two things don't fucking jive. It's bullshit. But, for example, in 1798, Congress, which also at that time included a number of people whose signatures are on the literal Constitution itself and who had passed and ratified the Bill of Rights, passed the Alien and Sedition Acts. Which Yeah, not good. Prohibited the publication of writings meant to scandalize or bring the government of the United States into disrepute. Mm, disrepute. <laughs> uh, you could, I could tell that sentence was heading towards disrepute from, like, <laughs> word number three. And, you know, like, something like that, like I say, should really bring the originalists some pause if they still had any working brain cells. Yeah. And uh, for our international and non-legal friends, originalists are folks who argue that the Constitution should be interpreted in accordance with its quote-unquote original meaning, which is a stupid thing in its own right because, you know, it was 
drafted, argued over, and adopted by, like, thousands of people who all had different interpretations of its meaning. But yeah. even the most mainstream originalist position of going for the most widely accepted meaning runs into some very big hurdles with the Alien and Sedition Act. Just Well, it's also, I mean, it literally, like, written by people whose eyes would melt if you showed them an iPhone. Like, <laughs> you know, who would shit stupid. themselves to ride in a 1985 uh, Ford Fiesta. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Uh, but the states also obviously had no love for freedom, right? They prohibited profanity, blasphemy, and all sorts of manner of speech that even the far right today would largely, I think, still argue is constitutionally protected. There's certainly some who want to do away with those protections, but, you know, I think most of them are still just going along with what they remember from grade school civics. Uh, free speech, you can't, tell, you can't stop me from saying what I want you, to say. You can't tell me what I can say. <laughs> well, we're not going to spend much time in the founding period and most of the 1800s because largely much doesn't start to happen on civil rights until the late half of the 19th century and early 20th. But I think you get the gist that these rights were basically not worth the paper they were written on. Um, and didn't even apply to the states, as I said, right? Mm -hmm. Many states had their own versions of the, the First Amendment written into their state constitutions. But similar to the U.S. Bill of Rights, they were just largely ignored unless there was, like, enough popular support that the states basically had to do something about it. So mm -hmm. in the latter half of the 1800s in the United States, a little thing happened called the Civil War. And yes, uh, a little Iron thing Man happened on the way to the forum. Iron Man was there. Spider-Man was there. Um, uh, Captain America, obviously. We all know about this. We've read our history books uh, produced by Marvel. So but, you know, namely, a bunch of traders got their asses kicked. Um, mm -hmm. And officially, although not as much in practice, we got a little bit closer to realizing that whole thing about all men being created equal. Well, I mean, we definitely tried. Like, yeah. for a little bit. And then some people gave up on it, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But the most important advancement in civil rights in the U.S. came out of this as well in the form of the Civil War Amendments, and specifically the 14th Amendment. So, mm -hmm. following the Civil War, and isn't it crazy that it took, let's see, Civil War, 1860s, you know, almost 100 years, and we still were just on the 13th new amendment? Yes. Like, we had only had two? That is nuts to me. That is fucking nuts, because there was a lot of shit that needed changing in that document. Uh, but So we got the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, with the 13th banning slavery and involuntary servitude, except as punishment for a crime, and then the 15th prohibiting the federal and state governments from denying the right to vote based on race, color, or previous condition of servitude, and the 14th being the most badass, totally jacked, just beefcake on steroids who drank his protein powder this morning of an amendment, ever drafted in terms of impact. Mm -hmm. uh, and the most important part of the 14th Amendment for us today is Section 1, which reads, quote, All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Hell yeah. Now, Is the 14th Amendment also the one that's like, no fucking traitors in Congress? Uh, yes, I think that's section two or section three. Yeah, I think yeah, you're right. Okay. Now, the 14th wouldn't become a total badass overnight. As we all know, gains take time. Uh, and it had some setbacks along the way. Uh, that was a good, that was a good call back to the Too many cheat joke. days. Good I'm going to keep calling back to this joke. Uh, but one of the things it did right off the bat was to negate the famous U.S. Supreme Court case of Dred Scott v. Sanford. 
So Dred Scott was an enslaved African-American man born in Virginia who was eventually sold to Dr. John Emerson, a surgeon in the U.S. Army in, I wrote 19, 1836. That is incorrect, yes. Um, Emerson took Scott with him to Fort Armstrong, which was in Illinois, which was a free state, uh, and also to what was then the territory of Wisconsin, which was also free. It's hard to think that we once, you know, took Wisconsin seriously enough that we had a territory named it. Uh, (laughs) But that is where Scott met Harriet Robinson, an enslaved woman owned by Lawrence Talafiero, uh, who he married and eventually had two children with. Um, and so when that happened, uh, Talafiero, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, transferred ownership of Harriet Robinson to Emerson so that uh, Scott and she could be together, not the sort of kindness that was usually given to slaves at this time. So, you know, good on you, slave owner, I guess. Mm, you do um, not have to hand it to them. <laughs> no, you don't. No, you yep. definitely don't. But in 1837, Emerson was transferred to Louisiana, before eventually returning to the shithole slave state that I live in, Missouri. Um, and when Emerson died, Scott tried to buy his freedom from Emerson's widow, uh, but she refused, which eventually led to Scott and Harriet filing freedom suits. Now, freedom suits, we don't really have a bunch of time to get into, but basically a slave could file a lawsuit, and basically this case ended freedom suits, arguing that I was taken to a free state, slavery is illegal in that state, therefore, when I was there, I was free, after being freed, I cannot be re-enslaved, is the mm. gist of it. And his suit was initially heard in St. Louis at a courthouse now overlooked by the Gateway Arch, basically just two blocks from where I used to live downtown. Mm. Um, I think, I, I think I when I, I don't remember, I think I like showed you a picture of it out of my balcony. I one think so, yeah. Because it was right there. Um, and, and the St. Louis court actually originally ruled in Scott's favor and gave him his freedom. But then the Missouri Supreme Court being Missouri, uh, reversed that ruling, and the appeal Mm. eventually made its way to the United States Supreme Court, where the opinion was written by Chief Justice Roger Taney, who can rot and piss. So, Taney wrote, for his forever shame, that, quote, Upon the whole, therefore, it is the judgment of this court that it appears by the record before us that the plaintiff in error is not a citizen of Missouri in the sense of which that word is used in the Constitution, and that the Circuit Court of the United States, for that reason, had no jurisdiction in the case and could give no judgment in it. Its judgment for the defendant defendant must consequently be reversed and a mandate issued directing the suit to be dismissed for want of jurisdiction. And yes, that was basically taken exactly how you think it was. African-Americans cannot be citizens. More importantly, slaves cannot be citizens. So that case just, just, you know, feel like it's not taught very much in Florida these days. No. And the citizenship clause of the 14th Amendment was clearly intended to overrule this holding in Dred Mm -hmm. Scott and to establish all formerly enslaved persons as citizens, although notably, it still excluded Native Americans. Um, And that didn't happen until uh, eventually there was a a law passed by Congress granting citizenship to all Native Americans. Uh, So that wasn't even done by another amendment. Uh, And the right today has, you know, I think you're aware, basically been clamoring to remove the birthright citizenship clause Mm -hmm. or coming up with just stupid interpretations of how it could be ignored or just doesn't mean that anyone. Yeah, they were trying to do it with Kamala Harris, right? What's that? They were trying to say Kamala Harris isn't a citizen because she was like there was some weird shit that they were trying to like work I don't around. No, I haven't heard the one ab- about Kamala Harris, but I mean, like, look, if you're gonna give me a way to argue that Ted Cruz is not a citizen, I'm for it. Motherfucker <laughs> was born in Canada. Um, but, like, it's that sort of stupid shit. Um, the the clause is very clear. That if you're born here, you're a citizen. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and these right wing fucks just, you know, let's be honest, they fucking hate people from south of the southern border and they don't want them to be citizens because their children were born here. Uh, that's what it's all about. So they don't. Okay, so that's right. Just quickly, these, these... the the mm-hmm. Kamala Harris thing is that um, neither of her parents were citizens at the time she was born here. So they were trying ah, to say yes. that that means you're not there a natural born citizen. Yeah. Despite her being born in California. Yep, that's the kind of bullshit they're trying to go for. But anyways, so uh, I mentioned some setbacks for the mighty 14th, uh, which notably came in what's called the slaughterhouse cases. So. Most of us reading what I read to you a couple minutes ago, the 14th Amendment, uh, would look at, like, I think, the Privileges and Immunities Clause would seem to be the part that, that would, you know, have a great impact in protecting civil rights. But as it shook out, the Privileges and Immunities Clause today basically has no significance in American law because of a bunch of white butchers in New Orleans. Uh, so okay. these butchers were angry at a city ordinance that required a- all sorry, slaughterhouses. Sorry, just quickly, just quickly, actual butchers, not... Actual butchers, not like Billy the Butcher, uh, Billy Butcher from uh, The Boys, uh, not like the Butcher of whatever street. I'm trying to think of other famous butchers. Uh, Butcher, (laughs) uh, Sweeney Todd. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of, Sweeney Todd. Anyways. He's uh, a barber, not a butcher, but that's fine. Uh, Wasn't his nickname a butcher because he sliced people up? Or am I thinking of somebody else? I'm thinking of Jack the Ripper. Is that who I'm thinking of? I have no idea. Anyways. So these butchers were angry at this city ordinance, and the ordinance required that all slaughterhouses be moved south of the city across the Missouri River or the Mississippi River uh, into a state-run slaughterhouse, primarily for public health reasons. Right back at the day, like they just fucking throw buckets of blood on the street and shit, and you know, mm-hmm. fucking entrails lying around, uh, and that's not particularly healthy, as you can imagine. No. So these butchers brought a case claiming that this practice was an un- unconstitutional restriction on their privileges and immunities as citizens of the United States, uh, particularly their right to sustain their lives through labor, which is a fucking dystopian phrase if I've ever heard one. Mm-hmm. Um, the Supreme Court really sort of split some hairs to rule in favor of the state and held that there were two forms of privileges and immunities, those that apply as citizens of the states and those privileges and immunities that apply as citizens of the United States. Mm. Yeah. And that the Privilege and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment only protected those privileges and immunities that you had as citizens of the United States, basically gutting the Privileges and Immunities Clause. Yeah. And, you know, today, the only rights protected by the Privileges and Immunities Clause are the right to own land and the right to travel between states, which was already protected by the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the Fifth Amendment. So Mm. that's all we got now. They basically gutted it. It doesn't really mean anything anymore. But— the 14th Amendment really only started to flex those massive buys and tries in the early 20th century. Yes, I'm keeping, I'm still going back to that joke. Still going back to the joke. Because of something called the incorporation doctrine. And the beginning of a really thorough application of the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. So, unlike the 5th Amendment due process clause, which has been found only to apply to the federal government, the Mm -hmm. the 14th Amendment due process clause explicitly applies to the states and prohibits them from depriving anyone of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And this was really a sea change in civil rights in the United States. And this is because of what's called the incorporation doctrine. An incorporation is the process of the Supreme Court declaring that various rights protected by the Constitution now apply to states. So 
Freedom of speech. Previously, your freedom of speech was only protected from the federal government. Mm -hmm. But when freedom of speech under the First Amendment became incorporated, now your freedom of speech was protected from your state and local governments. Meaning that seems better, honestly. It's much better. Yeah. It's really much better. Um, everyone's favorite judge, favorite named judge anyways, uh, Felix Frankfurter, uh, <laughs> argued – it's a funny name. It's it just is, a funny yeah. name. I can't believe – he was such an important person in U.S. history with that ridiculous name. Yep. Uh, argued that incorporation is necessary, quote, not because those rights are enumerated in the first eight amendments, but because they are of such a nature that they are included in the conception. In the conception, I hate it when I'm reading a quote and I, I do my inflection wrong based on how I wanted to read it. In the conception of due process of law. So what constitutes due process under this approach is a time contextual determination of what is due. In the mm. context of the era, right? You have process, but what is due and what is process? These are the questions that lawyers argue over because we're assholes. So, and this is the sort of living constitution approach. All that term isn't directly applicable, and I don't think it really existed back at the time that this argument was going on. But regardless of the legal theory by which it occurs, there are several um, that sort of conflict with each other in various ways. Under the incorporation doctrine, the Supreme Court started to declare that constitutional rights, and not as they were originally understood, because they really were garbage back then, uh, protected individuals from states, and they started to expand the scope of those rights through various mm -hmm. cases. And the first big case generally accepted to apply the incorporation doctrine is named Gitlow v. New York, uh, 268 U.S. 652, if you want to go look it up. So... In 1919, Benjamin Gitlow, a member of the Socialist Party of America, was arrested and convicted under New York's criminal anarchy law of 1922. Sorry, 19... 1919. Yeah. 1919. Okay. I didn't misspeak. 1919. No, no, I, I, I just, I didn't, you broke up. Okay. I didn't hear yeah. you. Uh, so he was convicted under New York's criminal anarchy law, uh, which had been passed after William McKinley's assassination in 1901. He was assassinated A fair by time to pass that, to be fair. Like... <laughs> like... I mean, okay, the United States has a long and illustrious history of discriminating against and fear-mongering about any leftist group. Yeah. Anarchists, to be socialists, fair, communists. They did kill a president. <laughs> one. One per... Yeah. Hey, look, they're well, anarchists. Also, I so, was, I, I so mean, look, the hey, read... the anarchists did it by his own because there's no structural... Uh, that's true. That's uh, yeah, the that's exactly. the beauty of anarchy. Um, <laughs> the 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 amount of just like assassinations and bombings that used to happen just like on the street, they'd be like, "I'm an anarchist. Here's a bomb. You know, Off you go." Like, honestly, I'm surprised that back in the day, before we had like the Secret Service or anything, there weren't more assassinations of presidents. Like, mm -hmm. because they would just like go walk around, go to they the would, theater, for yeah, example. <laughs> Very publicly in a giant hat. <laughs> exactly. You get what I'm talking about. Right? Yeah. Uh, but anyway, he was convicted under this law for publishing a document titled Manifesto of the Left-Wing National Conference, uh, which I will link in the show notes because it is, it is your right to read it if you want to and my goddamn right to distribute it. Uh, so it will be in there if you want to check it out. And he was represented at trial by Clarence. Please Guerra. don't get arrested because I cannot do this podcast on my own. Yeah, I know you'd be in real trouble. I would um, be in real trouble. <laughs> he was represented by Clarence Darrow, uh, one of the most legendary labor and criminal defense attorneys to ever live. A but legend. Of course, a legend. A true legend. Also has his own skeletons in the closet. But of course, 
he still lost because there was no overcoming just, you know, the sentiment. The yeah. law that was brought in against socialists yes. to prevent them from killing yes. presidents. Yeah. Uh, and on appeal to the Supreme Court, he was represented by the American Civil Liberties Union, which was a very new organization at the time. The ACLU was founded in 1920. Um, and this was their first major First Amendment case before the Supreme Court. I didn't know they'd been around that long. Yeah, they've been around a long time. They've been doing fantastic. That's that's part of the reason why they're they have involvement in probably more civil rights cases than just about anybody because they'd else. established a reputation by the time. Yeah, it's basically just how long they've been around, and yeah. and you know they they have uh, chapters all around the country. Right by like the forties, there's like a chapter in every state, and they're doing all this work and stuff. Anyway, so the court still upheld Gitlow's conviction uh, in this case under the clear and present danger test. Mm. which is more vague than anyone would like it. And over time, that test would be changed and much more narrowed uh, as to what that means. The, the, the current test is similar, but it's much more narrow. Um, but So in doing this, they explicitly ruled that the First Amendment, freedom of speech, and freedom of the press applied to the states. And both Louis Brandeis and Oliver Wendell Holmes, two of the real greats on the free speech front, uh, both dissented on this case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Holmes wrote, just brilliant, like... I read these old cases. And I'm like, nobody can write like this anymore. I don't know why, but no, and it's it's probably like we just we don't. This isn't our vernacular anymore. That probably has something to do with it. But for some reason, like nobody has this sort of fantastic, you know, biting prose anymore. He so he wrote, "quote It is said that this manifesto was more than a theory. That it was an incitement. Every idea is an incitement. It offers itself for belief, and if believed, is acted upon unless some other belief outweighs it." or some failure of energy stifles the movement at its birth. The only difference between an expression of opinion and an incitement in the narrower sense is the speaker's enthusiasm for the result. Eloquence may set fire to reason, but whatever may be thought of the redundant discourse before us, it had no chance of starting a present conflagration if, in the long run, the beliefs expressed in proletarian dictatorship are destined to be accepted by the dominant forces of the community. The only meaning of free speech is that they should be given their chance and have their way. Is this before or after the famous you can't shout fire in a crowded theater? This, uh, that might be from this case. No, I think that's later. Um, I don't remember when that, that quote came from. Uh, let me just pull it up there real quick. Because that was basically like dicta. Um, it, it wasn't like anything in particular, but it, that came from Shank v. United States, 1919. So, uh, uh, you know, like a year before, year or two before this one, I think. Um, okay. I don't remember when the opinion came out in this one. But yeah, so that's, uh, and that one I think was also written by Oliver Wendell. It was, yeah, that's famous. Yeah, Wendell that Holmes. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so like his conception eventually won out the day as far as like what is this imminent danger. I sorry, just just to go to go back to your uh, your point on the writing. I don't think anyone has the patience to read that anymore. <laughs> no, genuinely, but but genuinely, I think writing has to communicate something to your audience. And if you're writing like that, and I know the audience is it isn't like the public necessarily, mm-hmm. yeah. but like I don't think people have the patience to read like that anymore. You're probably right, but also it is aimed at a legal audience. And as lawyers, we do pick over every single word in there. Yeah, but Um, that's kind of wanky, honestly. So you deserve to have less good writing. Fuck you. (laughs) Uh, And this, you know, this raises another important quirk of U.S. constitutional law, namely that no right is absolute. Um, So, you know, our friends over in Germany, they have freedom of speech, but not Nazi speech. Nope. (laughs) Nazi speech, very much not allowed. 
Uh, also, you know, similar to most of Europe, for some reason, decided Nazi speech, mostly not okay. Yeah. Uh, and somehow all those countries still survive. I don't know how that could work. Uh, but, you know, no right is absolute even within the United States, although I think we take free speech to a much well, further extent I, I, than a lot I of countries. I will say, despite it being very illegal, Germany did still have Nazis a long time after do. the actual Nazis disappeared. So I would uh-huh. say that, like, illegalizing Nazi today, speech <laughs> hasn't, hasn't really been that helpful. Google AFD, my friend. Or, or um, neo-Nazis, just yeah. any of them. Like, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so we recognize that some rights may infringe upon the rights of others, right? So your right to freedom of speech may impinge on other people's rights to enjoy tranquility or to be free from harassment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a, a big touch point for this was the uh, – uh, uh, why am I blanking on The, the right other? to swing my fist ends at the other person's face. <laughs> That's a great quote, yeah. But I was thinking particularly of the um, – What's those douchebags with the signs of picketed funerals? Why am I blanking? Oh, on that? Westboro uh, Baptist Church. But yeah, Baptist. The Westboro Baptist Church, right? Where basically, when their case made it to the Supreme Court, it was like, yeah, they have a right to fucking protest. They suck, but like, yeah, they can be there. Um, this is the general, and you know, we also can't seen, follow people around and harass them. Or like, what's the deal? Well, if that if you're harassing someone, then that's harassment. But yeah. if they're just standing on a street corner, they're technically just engaging in their speech. Yeah. And we see a similar thing with abortion protest cases. Um, you know, people who want to picket outside of abortion clinics. The law on that, unfortunately, has basically been shaped by right wing shitbag judges. Mm. Who just you know want to get rid of wanted to get rid of abortion anyways, and we're fully mm-hmm. on board with these protesters who want to sit out there and scream at people who are going into a Planned Parenthood. Um, so I think there's a lot of problems with this, um, and you can see how those tension exist, right? Those tensions mm-hmm. exist. Up until very recently, people had the right to get an abortion. These the, people also have a right to protest. The abortion protester sitting outside of the abortion clinic screaming at people. I would argue that in a very real way that goes beyond the hypothetical that infringes upon someone's right to obtain an abortion Mm -hmm. in the way that it acts as a coercive attempt to prevent them from doing so. Um, So anyways, there's there's all these various tensions throughout our law. Mm -hmm. But the Supreme Court has developed tests over time to determine if a government entity in particular may infringe upon a right. Mm -hmm. For example, you have the right to freedom of speech. But governments can place reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions on that right. You can't, for example, start screaming whatever's on your mind outside an apartment complex at 2 in the morning. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, in the speech context, these restrictions have to be content neutral, uh, which, you know, I would say that's a good thing for leftist movements that have been censored throughout time. But we also do need to take a look at, for example, fucking Nazi speech, as I Mm -hmm. mentioned before. Your speech can't be restricted based on the content of the speech. So if a conservative is allowed to yell outside the building at 2 a.m., a leftist has to be allowed to yell outside that building at 2 a.m. as well, or the mm-hmm. government has violated the constitutional protection of freedom of speech. And in the context of the freedom of speech, we have another test that laws infringing on the right must pass called strict scrutiny. And I, I apologize that I'm doing a lot of, like, basic legal splaining today. It's fine. I need it. But I felt like since we're going to do several episodes on this, I had to lay down some basic groundwork on how the legal system works and how some of these tests are. So the test applies when a law passed by a state or the federal government infringes on a fundamental right. And not all rights are fundamental rights. They mm-hmm. have to be declared so by the Supreme Court. But it does apply to most of the rights within the Bill of Rights as well as some others. So in order for the law to survive, it must be justified by a compelling government interest, which is a higher bar than it sounds like. 
Uh, it must be narrowly tailored to achieve that goal or interest, and it must be the least restrictive means for achieving that interest. And those, those three requirements mean that usually when a law faces the strict scrutiny test, it's found to be unconstitutional. There's just very few times where mm-hmm. a law is able to pass the, the – because that last one there must be the least restrictive means for achieving that interest. You know, any lawyer worth their salt is going to just throw out a dozen different examples of how they could have come up with a least uh, – a less restrictive means than whatever they chose for doing this. Mm-hmm. And the court's going to be like, yep, you're right. Boom. It's bad. Now – so obviously following Gitlo, uh, the 1920s case we talked about, the freedom of speech still wasn't protected in the way we think of it today in the U.S., right? Many specific types of speech were still outlawed despite the incorporation of the First Amendment against the states. And the next great leaps in the free speech arena really came courtesy of the efforts of the ACLU in the 30s and throughout the 40s. So in 1931, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Yetta Stromberg in Stromberg v. California, 283 U.S. 359, Uh, Stromberg was a 19-year-old member of the Young Communist League, uh, Mm. where she worked at one of their summer camps, and she was charged and convicted for holding a ceremony where each morning the children would raise a red flag and pledge their allegiance to the workers' red flag. Look, I think all pledges of allegiance are weird. I think they should all be banned. You might say that it's a red flag. I find it a little bit creepy. Yeah. Don't have kids pledging things, especially for kids. Don't have if anyone adults want to pledge, honestly. go ahead and pledge. Man. Don't have kids pledge. It's still things. really like that. Yeah, I mean, Feels it's really it, weird. Well, yeah. yeah. But the Supreme Court overturned the conviction uh, and found that the conduct did not fall within the clear and present danger uh, arena. And, you know, there's that, that think about this. This is the 1930s. Um, the U.S. wasn't particularly pro-communist at the time, no. yet it was during this specific time period, mostly communist and socialist cases uh, who were making it to the Supreme Court and causing these advances in uh, our, our First Amendment law. So mm. really important that they're doing all this shit. And at some point in the 30s, civil liberties sort of became, you know, trendy. Mm. Um, even conservative groups like the American Bar Association sort of got behind the concept of civil rights and it. It's weird to think of civil rights as a trendy thing. It mm-hmm. really is. But you got to remember, we did really didn't have civil rights up to this point in the country. You were really at the whim of whatever your shitball state government wanted to do. If they wanted to fuck with you, they could fuck with you. Uh, but all of a sudden, people are like, hey, you know what? I kind of like the idea of doing stuff and things. Fair enough. I don't like that the state says I can't do that stuff and things. Uh, so, you know, a lot of these cases came around. Uh, De Jong v. Oregon, 299 U.S. 353. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of a Communist Party member in Portland who had convicted under the state's criminal syndicalism law uh, for speaking at a public meeting of the Communist Party. Uh, you know, I said, we can't overlook how many that, cases okay. were brought by communists. That, so just... People were being convicted for speaking at public meetings of the Communist Party? That is... Yeah, that and, seems... and usually these cases were brought arguing that, you know, either, like, there were explicit calls for revolution, which, yeah. you know, includes violent revolution, uh, and that this was a call to imminent lawless action, which is a phrase that actually didn't develop for a little while longer. Um, but, you know, but either that or things like, well, you know, communism inherently involves... Is anti-American uh, and of those, right? yeah. Well, it involves the idea of revolution and oppression, and yeah, this yeah. is, you know, uh, calling for violence or calling for this, that, and the other, and that was sort of the grounds for, for bringing mm-hmm. those things. You know, and, you know, I mentioned the ACLU uh, a couple minutes ago, just for for background. Um, It was founded in 1920 by, among others, Helen Keller, uh, Felix Frankfurter, and Roger Nash Baldwin. 
uh, in response to the Palmer raids, which okay. were organized and carried out at the orders of A. Mitchell Palmer. Ah, isn't that, they name things after people. <laughs> Who was the Attorney General of the United States under Woodrow Wilson at the time. And they were specifically to target, you know, the left. Socialists, anarchists, and communists. And the aim was to round them up and deport them. Woodrow um, Wilson once again sucking, you tell yeah, me? No. no. Who could imagine such a thing would happen? Um, they resulted in about 10,000 arrests and hundreds of deportations, largely of Eastern Europeans. Uh, and they're kind of a preface to the Red Scare that came after World War II. But in the Great Depression, First Amendment issues of censorship and obscenity really started to come into focus. So famously, a lot of books were censored at the time. That's where, you know, the movies were out there. They weren't quite as widespread as they are today. Magazines, newspapers, those things could be censored. But it was really a lot of high-profile books being censored uh, mm. that brought this issue to, to the forefront. So James Joyce's book Ulysses was, of course, widely censored or banned all around the world. Um, when it was published, particularly because there was a portion of the book that had several characters masturbating. Mm-hmm. Um, at one Sinful. point, get him out of here. Yeah. Uh, at one point, the ACLU ret- uh, represented H.L. Mencken, uh, who was arrested for distributing uh, his. Uh, um, uh, ma- I think it was a magazine, not a newspaper, uh, but he was distributing that. He was arrested for it. He was eventually acquitted. Um, and then, with the with regard to Ulysses. The ACLU ended up making more Supreme Court precedent with the case of United States v. One Book Called Ulysses in <laughs> That's a great name for a case. I love that. Sometimes it really is just like, oh, man, you guys just hit on the good names. Uh, Judge Learned Hand, actually his real name. No way. Uh, yeah, Learned Hand. That's his real name. Wrote the opinion uh, saying, quote, Art certainly cannot advance under compulsion to traditional forms, and nothing in such a field is more stifling to progress than limitation of the right to experiment with a new technique. The foolish judgments of Lord Eldon about 100 years ago, prescribing the works of Byron and Southey, and the finding by the jury under a charge by Lord Denman that the publication of Shelley's Queen Mob was an indictable offense, are a warning to all who have to determine the limits of the field within which authors may exercise themselves. That's a so, good. That's a good opinion. You like it because it's referencing British stuff. No, it's not. It's, I think it's well-written and clear. <laughs> that is true. That's why I put it in there. So it would take decades from that point to bring freedom of speech to where we are today. And many of the great advances happened under the Warren Court, which is named that for Chief Justice Earl Warren, um, a graduate of my alma mater, UC Berkeley, mm-hmm. right? Both the uh, undergrad and law school, he went there. Uh, and the Warren Court is sort of one of those important times that we're going we're gonna to be talking about a lot throughout this little series because... It's where a lot of shit happened. Just people started getting fucking rights, man. Mm-hmm. People started getting fucking rights. Who would have thought such a thing would happen? Never. But Earl Warren was appointed Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court in 1953 by Dwight Eisenhower. And he's probably a significant part of the reason why the John Birchers uh, and Robert Welch in particular called Eisenhower a communist agent. Mm. You know, Brown v. Board and stuff like that. We all know Robert Welch and the Birchers weren't good uh so they started getting really mad about that and the the great warren court cases on uh voting rights privacy criminal procedure we're going to talk about in other episodes but the warren court was responsible for the greatest expansion of first amendment rights in u.s history and part of that was in resolving the tension between two wings of the court in favor of the individual liberties side uh basically two sides had different ideas about it the individual liberties side won out so in the long run, civil liberties did win the day until, I would say more recently, the regressive right has re control of the court. And we've been, 
you know, up until then on a positive trajectory in American First Amendment rights, thanks to the Warren Court. And unsurprisingly, it's it's a number of their decisions that, that have the right pissed off to this very day. Mm-hmm. Um, it was during the Warren Court that not only did free speech rights start to be enforced, actually, in practice, but also the rest of our modern day First American, you know, First Amendment jurisprudence really came into focus. So... We mentioned earlier, and I have to talk about the case of Brandenburg v. Ohio. We, we mentioned it in passing, sort of, uh, which I referenced, which is where the ACLU represented Clarence Brandenburg, a Ku Klux Klan leader in rural Ohio, who was arrested after a television station recorded a speech that he gave at a Klan rally, which among, you know, all the things you would expect from a Klan rally had just, you know, talking about how we need to take care of those people and we need to get yeah. our revenge and had plans to march on Washington just all that bullshit. And the Supreme Court found in Brandenburg's favor, and in doing so, overruled basically decades worth of case law, which included Gitlow v. New York, although mm-hmm. incorporation was still in play. It was still there. Uh, but they replaced the clear and present danger test with one that is much more protective of free speech, the imminent lawless action test. Okay. So in order for a government to punish speech without running afoul of the Constitution— the speaker in question must be intending to incite a violation of law that is both imminent and likely. And, you know, as you know, not long after that, in the 70s, the Supreme Court decided uh, another similar case on different lines, not on free speech lines, but on freedom to assemble lines, also mm-hmm. free speech implicated, uh, the National Socialist Party of America v. Village of Skokie, mm-hmm. the Illinois Nazi case. Yep. Uh, best, best remembered for inspiring about five minutes of uh, the Blues Brothers movie. Uh, <laughs> basically, I think that's what... Because here's the funny thing. They didn't actually ever march on Skokie. They won their case, but they never marched on Skokie because they just got permits to go march in Chicago and they did it there instead. Yeah. It seems fucking, more effective, honestly. Honestly. Well, Skokie was a heavily Jewish uh, town, which is why gotcha. they wanted to go there, obviously. Well, yeah, because they didn't want to get fucked up like the Nazis at the Battle of Cable Street in London, probably. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So in 1969, all right, uh, the court heard the case of Tinker v. Des Moines Independent Community School District, which involved Mary Beth Tinker, who was then 13 years old, and four of her family members, uh, who decided to wear black armbands to school in protest of the Vietnam War. Okay. Uh, the school learned of their protest before it happened, and they made a rule banning the wearing of armbands. Uh, these kids still did it anyways, and they were suspended from the school and then brought their case through the ACLU again. Cool. Um, and, you know, as with a lot of these cases that advance civil rights, the plaintiffs who are responsible or who bring the cases, they receive death threats and angry letters and all the horrible abuse you would expect. Yeah. Um, you know, it just that's just the way it shakes out. So Justice Abe Fortas delivered the opinion in Tinker, and he found for the uh, uh, that for schools to justify censoring speech, they, quote, must be able to show that their action was caused by something more than a mere desire to avoid discomfort and unpleasantness that always accompany an unpopular viewpoint. And this is where we get the the idea that, uh, quote, it can hardly be argued that either students or teachers shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. So this is expanding that idea of free speech into the school context. Somewhere it certainly hadn't been before. If you know anything about the history of schooling in the United States... I don't. It's so. not one of a great deal of freedom. It's mainly one of beating children. That's, okay. main, that's mainly what it's about. 
Uh, and the case was a great advancement for the rights of children in school, even though there were some movements in that direction earlier, uh, like in West Virginia Board of Education v. Barnett, which is the case where the court found in favor of uh, Jehovah's Witness children who had been punished for not saying the Pledge of Allegiance in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, the Warren Court cemented these ideas that school children are not subject to the whims of the state merely because they're in school. Um, and, you know, we, we basically only talked about free speech up to this point, but the Warren Court also did some, some stuff in other areas of First Amendment speech, like the Free Exercise Clause, the Establishment Clause. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the cases that you probably heard about or, you know, you've heard the right screech about, even if they don't know the name of the case, is mm-hmm. Engel v. Vital. And that is the case about prayer in public schools. Okay. Um, prayer has been in American public schools for most of our history. And that's part of the reason I don't think it makes sense to argue on the history of it with anyone. I just don't care about the history. It's wrong, and we shouldn't force religion on children in schools. Yep. I, I feel like that's a, a much more cohesive uh, way to think about it than mm-hmm. whatever anyone else is doing. Uh, anyways, so this case, Engel v. Vital, uh, the 1951 uh, New York School Board, Board of Regents, approved a so-called non-denominational prayer to be said in school every morning. And the okay. prayer read, quote, Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon thee, and we beg thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. Amen. Um, and to be clear, students were allowed to opt out of these prayers and leave That's the good. room if they wanted. But I would argue, and I think this is a, a, something that stays true to modern cases on this topic, that there's a coercive effect to this. Mm-hmm. And I say that as one of the people who used to scream the under God part uh, in the pledge. Yeah, that sounds like, like an assembly or something just to piss other people off. Yep. Like, if you are the one who leaves the room, all the other kids know you're leaving the room. Yep, that's true. And that's, yeah, it's, it's just, there's a reason why. No, it is coercive. You're right. Yeah. Um, so a group of families in New Hyde Park sued the school board president, William J. Vital, and the case was headed by uh, a Jewish man named Stephen Engel, uh, as well as another man who was described in court papers as an atheist, although he later said that he was actually a practicing Jew. Uh, but that one of the lawyers was like, hey, we really need an atheist for this case. How do you feel about prayer? And he was like, I don't know. I don't know if it actually does anything. They're like, you're an atheist now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> okay. The term used to be a bit looser than it is now. Yeah. Uh, it also included a Unitarian church member and a member of the New York Society for Ethical Culture, okay. which... I want to find out if that still exists and join if I can. Uh, But the argument they made was that prayer in schools violated the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, which says that Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court found that although the prayer was vague and supposedly non-denominational, it still... It's it's Christian-y, though, right? Yes, it still establishes... Unless you're allowed to do it in Arabic. Like... Uh, it still chose, at the very least, a particular group of religions, right? Monotheistic mm-hmm. ones. Yep. So the vagueness isn't really a defense to the Establishment Clause, since it was very clearly trying to promote a particular set of beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, this wasn't the end of the prayer in school debate, obviously, as, you know, the right is very much trying to get it back into uh, schools today. Like, um, I'm thinking of, I think it was Texas that just mandated that, like, was it the Ten Commandments be put in every mm-hmm. classroom or a cross or something? I forget what they did. Seems illegal. I don't know. The, the, yeah, this this debate is really not going to go away for any any amount of time, right? But like in 1971, we got the case of Lemon v. Kurtzman, uh, which established the Lemon Test. Which fa- sounds fake. I, you know, man, I 
lemon v it does sound like lemon curd if you it does yeah it does sound like lemon curd sounds delicious right now Mm -hmm. uh but that the lemon test says that in order for constitutional uh for state activity to be constitutional uh it must one have a secular purpose two neither advance nor inhibit uh religion and three must not result in excessive entanglement between government and religion um and you know this over the over the the years we got cases that have for example said that you can't do public prayers at graduation ceremonies. Mm-hmm. You can't do them over loudspeakers at football games. But the more recent trend is very obviously to undo all of this. Yep. Um, it, it's worth noting that nothing prevents a student at public school from praying on their own if they want to. Mm-hmm. It's compulsory prayer or religious yep. activities that the school takes an active role in that are banned. But, of course, our current Supreme Court wants to undo all of this. So mm-hmm. a few years ago in 2017, we got the Trinity Lutheran case. Mm-hmm. which relates to a church here in Missouri, in Columbia, uh, that wanted state funds to resurface a playground at their explicitly religious preschool and daycare facility. There is no argument. They wrote in their marketing materials that this is about bringing children closer to God and blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. And the, you know, it, it's a, the purpose of the facility is proselytizing to children. Yep. Uh, and the state of Missouri initially said no, because, and here's a fun fact, Missouri has a long history of basically hating the city of St. Louis because it's Catholic. Um, (laughs) St. Louis has a lot of Catholic schools, you know, used to be part of the French territory and all that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Missouri had in their constitution uh, a ban on giving money to parochial schools, mainly as an attack on Catholic schools. A lot of these passed way back in the day. Uh, A lot of states were like, no money to religious schools. And they didn't realize that it would eventually stop them from giving money to the particular religious schools. It's very leopards-eating face party. Yes, it is. It is. So the state of Missouri originally said, no, you can't do this. It's in our constitution, no money to parochial schools. And the Supreme Court, being basically controlled by religious cult members and fascists at the time, uh, and unfortunately, also with Elena Kagan's vote as well, I think she was did just horrible on that. I don't know why she voted for it. Uh, basically undid decades of precedent in ruling mm-hmm. for Trinity Lutheran. And that case has led to the surge of public funding for private religious elementary and high schools that we've seen all across the country. Uh, finding that it's, you know, the Supreme Court found that it's unconstitutional to exclude churches or religious organizations from these sort of grant programs. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think it was it Arizona or I forget where. No, it was uh, Kansas, I think, where they all this news over the last couple of weeks that this program of vouchers for private schools is going to cost them like five times as much as they had originally planned, because, of course, of course, yep. it's just about giving money to these private religious schools. That's what it's all about. Always. So, I'm going to need you to start wrapping up. It's nearly an hour and a half. Let's right go. Now. I am wrapping up. We're on the final page. I cool. promise. Let's go. And then just this last year, we saw the ridiculous high school football case Joseph mm-hmm. Kennedy uh, brought in Kennedy v. Bremerton School District. And to get their desired outcome on that one, the conservative justices basically just ignored the reality and the facts and use a set of alternative set of facts mm-hmm. to fit what they wanted, right? Uh, Kennedy had been coaching at Bremerton High School since 2008, uh, and he had held prayers on the 50-yard fi- the line of the field. Uh, you know, just, I don't know how, but apparently the school board didn't know he was doing this. That's I'm like, did you never go to the football games? Is he just, you don't go? Maybe it's a big school district and they just don't care. I don't know. But they had no idea about it until they heard, like, from an opposing team that they had played in 2015. So basically, when they heard about it, they said, hey, man, you know, you really can't do that. Um, you know, kids can pray independently, but you're going to the 50-yard line. You can't you're surrounded by all your, your players, 
and you're holding court here and doing all this shit, and, and that's just no good. We just really can't do that. Um, to which turned the coach into a giant, entitled, whiny Christian baby, mm-hmm. that, of course. Turned uh, him con- into or put a spotlight on? Yeah, he already on. was. He probably already was. And, you know, contrary to the right-wing press's version of events, he never was fired. Uh, he was put on paid leave because the media circus he caused, he actually you know, was going on every show that would give him uh, uh, five minutes of their mm-hmm. time, caused like crowds to storm the field, threats made to the school district, all this stuff. Um, and his contract expired that year. Mm. And he never reapplied for that contract. And fun fact, after he won his Supreme Court case this year, far as I've been able to find, he still hasn't reapplied to be a coach at that fucking school. This is... I mean, yeah. that's like, look, I probably wouldn't either if the school was like, hey, you have to stop being who you are. Well, like, y- you know, I this think ties into something Benedict, where uh, uh, for a court to hear a case, there has to be an act. You have to have standing. There yep. has to be an active case or controversy. Mm-hmm. There was none here, but they took this case anyways okay. because they wanted to do this. And, you know, that's that's what. And, you know, I should also point out, I talked about the coercive thing of schools. I think it's even worse with coaches. Right. He was out at the 50-yard line, surrounded by all his students. Gorsuch, in his opinion, wrote this bullshit. Like he, was, he offered his prayers quietly while his students were otherwise occupied, and he made short, private, personal prayer. Mm. Uh, and Justice Sotomayor, in her dissent, like, put pictures of, like, yeah. no, I've you're full of shit. I've seen the photos, yeah. Here he is, standing on the 50-yard line, surrounded by all his p- short, private, my ass, basically, mm-hmm. that kind of shit. Because there is a very coercive element to football coaches that I have experienced personally. Every football coach I've ever had was like an explicit fucking Christian weirdo. Mm-hmm. All of them. And they all try and get everyone to pray. They all do it. I have experienced it from coaches in high school. They all, I don't know why this is the case, but they seem to all fucking Because they don't know what they're doing and they need God's help. Maybe that's the case. <laughs> Maybe that very much is the case. But they all do this. And there is a very, a huge urge as a high school football player to do what coach says. And to be like coach. Yeah, I mean, you're it's, trained, it's a position of power. Yeah, for you're sure. told to look up at coach as a role model. That is the way this system works. And this, so there is an inherent coercion mm-hmm. in all of this. So, but to wrap all this up like you wanted, I'm sorry yep. we went so long and hurt your feelings. No, you're not. Uh, but, you know, to talk about the, the stat, audience. And, and is this sorry, episode is going to be you... longer than the other ones. I, I had to do all that background you... stuff about American okay. law. I'm sorry. But, you know, to just talk about the status of First Amendment rights today, and I know I didn't even have time to get to some of the fun cases, like uh, Bong Hits for Jesus or the Fuck the Draft Jacket, right, which some people have probably heard about. I'll mm-hmm. Benedict off the air. Um, or your very well-established right to give the middle finger to police if you want. Yep. But don't take legal advice from this podcast. They nope. might still hurt you anyways. Yep. But today, some of our First Amendment rights seem pretty secure. I think freedom of speech is one of those that it feels like even the fascists on the court now don't want to openly attack freedom of speech. But others, like the right to assemble, the freedom of religion, guaranteed by the, the Establishment Clause, freedom from religion, those are very much under attack. Um, and that's that's bad, man. Mm-hmm. That's... <laughs> like, uh, you know, I, I've, I've talked here about you know, some of these cases that we just talked about on freedom of religion front. But I think that we also see, forget the Supreme Court, look down at our lower courts, we see things like people being arrested and and look at the system in general also, right? You can't ignore the system. 
arresting protesters, arresting mm-hmm. peaceful protesters at Black Lives Matter events, arresting people who peacefully protest the Atlanta's cop city, arresting, mm-hmm. you know, the ridiculous bullshit that happened a few weeks ago where they tried to charge, and I think they still are, trying to charge people for running a bail fund. Mm-hmm. Like, this, none of these rights are secure, and we do have to keep fighting for them. But some of them do become cemented over time as somewhat of, of golden gooses that can't be slaughtered. Mm-hmm. And I think freedom of speech has sort of reached that level where it's there now. So that was a as short as I could possibly make it, as, 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 as little detail as I could probably put in, uh, an overview of First Amendment civil rights law in the United States. We're going to get into more fun stuff, I promise you, because I won't have to do all that background stuff anymore, mm-hmm. about some of fun cases, some civil rights stuff, all this uh, civil rights in the sense that everyone thinks about it. We're going to get into that in the coming episodes. But, you know, this epi- let's be honest. This episode was for me. Yep, it was for me. Very much. I'm, I'm a you lost me about 45 minutes in. And I, then love, here we are. I love talking about it. And uh, it's been really fun. And uh, ben, looked, ben looks really mad at me. The drop off on this episode of listeners is going to be drastic. I promise <laughs> you. <laughs> I don't really care, though. So I it all do. works out for me. I apologize to everyone who made it through that. But thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, if you just can't get enough of us, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash NYGBC and become a patron for as little as $2 an episode for patron-only episodes, shout-outs on the show, uh, early releases of our episodes, and $1 an episode. Did I say $2? $1 an episode. Uh, early $2 releases an of episode if you want us to say your name. Yeah, and more. As always, we have to give a shout-out to our wonderful and amazing patrons. Some trans gal, New Buildings are a Globalist Conspiracy, Dapper Dinosaur, Carrie Conrison, Bobo D. Bear, Chili, Madeline and Zachary Wilson-Fetro, Stephen DeBeau, Torian DeGallant, Amy Kaiser, Sean Sullivan, Lauren S. I love it when Jordan yells out, thank you very much. Also, go listen to the NYGBC podcast. Little Flick, William Patterson, Flack Weasel, Kieran Dactler. Join us next week when our guest will be UC Berkeley professor John Yu. <laughs> Henry Louis King Jr., Sarah Wolf, Aaron Burke, Megan A. Dooley, Gloria Scott, Clifton Stuckey, Pause on NYGBC, A Restless Native, A Baby, Wah. Veronica Forker, Melissa C., George Saulnier, Stefan, Shark Belly, Utah Outcast, Dave Barwick, Chris Palmer, Bad Bible Stitches, Mockingbird Nation, Bacara, Benjamin Carlisle, Dexter, Allison, Megan Ruth, Glowrung the Deceiver, Big Z Blasphemy, Jay Reynolds, Stephen and Cindy Dimmick, Taro Tucanon, and Balls Watterson. Thank you all, as always, for being our patrons. That's it for this week's show. Till next time, fire! Goodbye. Goodbye. Club Podcast is a production of Kevin and Benedict Productions. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. Music for this podcast is by Silverman Sound Studios. Find out more at silvermansound.com.